Hey y'all, to all the fathers out there, happy Father's Day. Just for you, today we're going to look at something that historians often overlook, and that's the fact that despite all that slavery and the post-war period threw at them, many black fathers still found a way to fulfill paternal duty and be seen as honorable fathers in the eyes of their families. But first, I got to talk about another podcast called Seizing Freedom. Seizing Freedom is a history podcast that is super focused on the way that black people secured their own liberation at the end of the Civil War and the Reconstruction period to look at the way they made freedom real by organizing for equality, even though there was a whole lot of violent backlash against that. Like my show, this show has interviews with historians that parallel the social and political movements of today, but it also has first-hand accounts brought to life by powerful voice actors. You can check it out at SeizingFreedom.com or in your favorite podcasting app. Add over. Now back to the show, where today I'm joined by Professor Libra Hildy of San Jose State University to discuss her book, Slavery, Fatherhood, and Paternal Duty in African-American Communities Over the Long 19th Century. So I want to start today talking about the fact that every Father's Day, the Black community kind of gets the side eye because of the issue of fatherlessness in our community. Then stereotypes about Black men being irresponsible and lazy come out. Something that your book points out very early on is that part of the problem is the way that scholars and historians have talked about Black men and Black fatherhood going back all the way to slavery. One of the things you talk about pretty early is the 1965 Moynihan Report and the harmful way that it depicts the black family structure. So I want to start talking about the historical tradition that your book is directly pushing against that perpetuates and promotes negative stereotypes about black families and black fathers without considering all of the systemic factors involved. So the Moynihan Report is, it's the ongoing basis for these incredibly damaging stereotypes, these ongoing stereotypes about black matriarchy in the family and the absent Black father. And these stereotypes have been used to not only denigrate the Black family overall, but they do a disservice to mothers and fathers. And they do a disservice to mothers because this whole idea of a matriarchy was used, and sometimes even within Black communities, to accuse Black women of emasculating Black men, blaming Black women for the absence of Black men in the family. And if you actually look at the African-American family in slavery and in the period right after slavery, which is what I'm looking at, you see something really different if you dig a little bit deeper. You see that both of these stereotypes are really misguided. They don't at all acknowledge the rich variety and the adaptability of the Black family. Yeah, that's one of the big things that the Moynihan Report did wrong was it forced Black families into the nuclear family structure, which isn't how a lot of Black families looked, particularly because of slavery. Right. There were so many constraints that slavery imposed on the family. And absolutely, there were nuclear families. There were two-parent households. But the family was really varied. It was really flexible because it had to be in order to survive. Family is the basic unit of human social organization, and people will find a way to make families work, and that's what enslaved people did. And that is not to say that those families weren't under enormous pressure. There was incredible external pressure on these families. They were often forcibly separated, but enslaved people did what they could 
to make those families work. And one of the ways they did that was that they formed the types of families that they could under local circumstances. And they would sometimes would change over the lifetime of a single individual because they were adapting to the pressures and they were adapting to the local circumstances that they faced. Ooh, we definitely should get into some of those pressures that Black families have had to overcome because something that your book talks about pretty early is the fact that the institution of slavery decentered Black masculinity. So Black men being men was itself attacked during and after slavery. Yeah. So one of the things I'm trying to do is complicate the picture of masculinity within slavery a little bit in that the common perception is that slavery just completely and utterly emasculated Black men. It was an emasculating institution. There is no doubt about that. But there's an interesting thing that I talk about in the book where masculinity had a very public aspect to it. And white men had access to public masculinity. Black men did not. And so what you end up getting is this kind of public-private dichotomy that emerges under slavery, where Black men are allowed to be men in a regulated way, as long as that masculinity is subsumed by white men, as long as they're under the control of white men. But they're allowed to be men if in this kind of regulated environment, if in taking on some of the characteristics of masculinity, they are benefiting the slaveholder somehow. And so I use stories of, of men like Lunsford Lane or Henry Brown. These were men who were feeding and clothing their families. And those families belonged to another slaveholder. So these slaveholders were manipulating these men's love of their families and their sense of paternal duty, their sense of duty to provision these families. They were using it to save money because in that way that they then didn't have to feed and clothe the people they owned. So slaveholders would allow Black men some of these attributes of masculinity if in doing so they gained some benefit from it. They did not like any public demonstration of masculinity. And we live with that legacy, what I call the masculine hierarchy. We live with that hierarchy to this day in that white America is still very uncomfortable and very antagonistic towards public displays of Black masculinity. I think Colin Kaepernick is a perfect example of this. It's okay for Black men to play football. They can be big and strong and masculine in that sense. They can go out and hit each other really hard. They can be masculine in that sense. But they're not allowed to speak their own minds. They're not allowed to have their own opinions. And so we still see that white people have internalized this attitude about this hierarchy of masculinity, and it still informs attitudes today, and it still informs public policy today. This deep discomfort with public displays of Black masculinity. And that affects Black women as well. It's not just Black men. Because if under your worldview, you have this kind of human hierarchy, and white men are at the top, and Black men are allowed to have this private masculinity that they can exhibit within the confines of the slave quarters, within the private domain of the plantation. There is this expectation that as men, women are supposed to be subordinate to them. So Black women are supposed to be subordinate to them. And so if you just assume that women are naturally subordinate to men, then by subordinating Black men, you're subordinating all Black people. Yeah, that's why Black feminism had to be its own separate movement. You touched on so many things I want to get into. 
But what you said about black masculinity being attacked reminds me of Muhammad Ali and the way that as a black Muslim who burned his draft card and called himself the greatest, he was attacked so much. But as just Cassius Clay, the boxer, white people didn't really perceive him as a problem. Right. He's allowed to go out and hit other men really hard. But when he speaks his mind, when he has an opinion, that becomes frightening. That is threatening to white America. I think another really good example would be someone like LeBron James. He's this incredible athlete and he speaks out on political issues and he's told to shut up and dribble. You don't see the same thing happen when white athletes speak out. There's this assumption that they can be both masculine in the sense of playing a sport but also have opinions. It's something that not all white people, but many are uncomfortable with black men expressing their opinions. Which gets into so many things. You talk about in your book that there are ways that men can be overtly rebellious and there are just like private ways as caretakers that they can kind of rebel against the system. But before that, you were talking about how these men would be living on different plantations than their children and providing for them. And this is one of the reasons why Black family structures look different, because there would be abroad marriages where women and children will be on one plantation and the man will be on another. And that's one of the obstacles that had to be overcome. So let's talk about abroad marriages and what that did to the Black family structure. I think that's one reason that historians and sociologists have for so long dismissed the contributions of many enslaved men, because many of these men did live on different plantations. So what you end up with in that situation is a matrifocal household. A matrifocal household means that it's headed by a woman and she takes a much larger role in childcare. And that's absolutely true if a couple is separated if the man is living on one plantation and has one owner and the wife and the children are living on another plantation and have another owner. And generally under these arrangements, they're called cross-plantation marriages or abroad marriages. Under these arrangements, the husband would visit usually two times a week, sometimes once a week, sometimes less frequently if he lived further away. And one of the things I'm trying to do in this book is show that these men were absolutely contributing to their families, many of them, not all of them. Obviously, you're never going to, under no human regime are you ever going to find that all men are great fathers. But a significant number of these men were absolutely involved in family life. They were contributing to the family in the ways that they could. So one of the things that I'm arguing in this book is that we need to reassess how we look at the enslaved family. Because we have a tendency to assume, historians have long had a tendency to assume that a matrifocal household was a matrifocal family. It could be, but it wasn't always. And so what we need to do is we need to reassess how we look at household versus family. And what I argue is that we need to focus on how a family functioned rather than the form that it took. So instead of looking at household, look at how the family worked, who considered themselves to be part of that family, how that family operated. There were many families where people lived in different households on different plantations. And so what I think that really is, is a multi-local kin network that is spread among multiple different households. But these can be emotionally intact families. And it's really important to look at things in this way because the other thing that happens is that how a slaveholder ran the plantation, basically local conditions can also affect the family. So what you might have is you might have a two-parent household 
where both the parents live there. But if you have centralized childcare on that plantation where the children are cared for in a nursery, they might not see their parents on a daily basis. So they might live in a two-parent household, but that family might function very similarly to an abroad marriage. There are numerous examples where children talk about the fact that because they're cared for in a nursery or in a centralized location on the plantation, they only see their parents on Sunday. So that doesn't look any different than a family where the husband lives on a different plantation and he comes to visit on Saturday night and he stays through Sunday. Those two families are functioning in very similar ways. So we need to look at how families function and who they consider to be members of those families as we assess enslaved families. Yeah. One of the like missteps why children are always so associated with their mothers is because part of the way slavery worked was that children, their like status of slave or free was determined by their mothers and not their fathers. So there's this legal direct attachment to mothers. But something you were talking about with these abroad marriages was that oftentimes the man and even their family considered home to be where their kids were, not the plantation they worked on. Yeah. In many cases, enslaved men would keep a lot of their property in their wife's cabin because that was what they considered to be home. Even though they had a different owner, they lived on a different plantation. And so what you see in these kinds of families is that men were really involved in family life. They were really involved in making decisions about their children. And they were doing this jointly with their wives. They just didn't live there for most of the week. I have found really interesting examples of families where the husband visits twice a week, And there's one amazingly long example where the son talks about the fact that his mother would wait until the father came on Wednesday or on Sunday and have him basically do any sort of discipline that needed to happen. She would wait and he would make decisions. So what you see in this case is that this is a man who didn't live with his family for most of the week, but his son certainly sees him as the head of the family. I don't know how the wife perceived this because I don't we don't have her side of the story, but the son certainly perceived his father to be the head of the family. So that's a natural local household. That's a cabin where if you were to look at a plantation register, that cabin would be in the woman's name. But the son perceives his father as an important figure and in fact talked about his father at length and how important his father was in shaping his sense of religion, his sense of self, his attitude towards work. His father was providing education because his father had a rudimentary education. His father bought him his first book. So his father was hugely important in terms of his identity. And that's really what your book stresses over and over again, is that being a caretaker and being present and putting the time and energy into fatherhood That's what being like an honorable Black father was in slavery, overcoming all the obstacles and just being there. That's what children most appreciated was emotional investment. Because one of the things I'm arguing in this book is that African-American communities over a long period of time had a very consistent ideal of caretaking, of fatherhood. And in that ideal, a father was a provider and a protector. Now, those were roles that were circumscribed by slavery. You could not overtly protect people. You're going to be killed, possibly. You're going to be sold away. So they had to find other ways 
to protect their children. It's also very hard to provision under slavery in certain circumstances. It's hard to materially provision, although some, like I said earlier, some slaveholders were perfectly happy to have Black men provision enslaved women and children because then they save money. And so there's something about materially provisioning your children, which many enslaved fathers were attempting to do, and many did quite effectively. But it is in some ways upholding slavery. In some ways, you're just increasing the master's property. And so what these men did was they found ways to provide for and protect their children in what I call ideological provisioning. They were finding this kind of covert and hidden way to provide for their children. And often that was through religion. That was through advice. It was through counsel. It was these intangible things that slaveholders couldn't control. Slaveholders couldn't control ideas. They could control food. They could control clothing. They could control things like that, but they can't control ideas. And so that's one of the things that Black fathers were providing for their children. And that's one of the reasons why this caretaking mode of masculinity and of fatherhood has been so obscured over time because African-Americans were themselves hiding it. That was what they had to do in order to provide for their children. This had to be covert. This had to be more hidden. Yeah. So that's the idea of what being an honorable father meant during slavery. And something super interesting that your book talks about is how an honorable father was often contrasted to the behavior of a white slaveholder. Because one of the many obstacles to Black family units staying together was the fact that a lot of children had white fathers, and it varied a lot how invested those white fathers would be in their families, but often they wouldn't acknowledge them and definitely wouldn't treat them like children or free them. So that was one of the things that broke up families. And that way of not acknowledging and not caring for children was directly contrasted with the values of Black fatherhood. So African-American communities had this idea of, like you said, honorable masculinity. And what that meant was that they did, they contrasted their sense of honor with the dishonor of slaveholders. And one of the most interesting ways that you see this coming out is exactly what you just mentioned, their assessments of white fathers. And I have two chapters in this book on white fathers, largely for that reason. One of the things I talk about is fatherless families within slavery. We have this stereotype that Black father was missing. Well, the fathers that were most often missing were the white fathers. They very rarely acknowledged their children or exerted any sort of paternal responsibility in relation to their children. That absolutely violated Black communities' sense of honorable fatherhood and paternal duty. And so they absolutely did. They felt like they had a more honorable masculinity, a more moral masculinity, and that slaveholders, they had the overt power. But that did not mean that they had honor, which is a really interesting turnabout because white Southerners were so obsessed with this idea of honor. Meanwhile, their slaves were behind their backs, basically denigrating their masculinity. That part of the book was just so interesting. I learned a lot with that part. You talked about the way that in the South, there was this whole thing about honor, but there was also an entire kind of secret, but very like well-known trade of women of mixed parentage were often sold specifically so that they could live in the house and be like a mistress to white slave owners. 
which that just takes like a psychological toll on how the black family unit is. Because if this woman then had to raise the kids alone because the father would not acknowledge them, or even if they did, black women often didn't want that man in their life. So that was another obstacle to families, especially black fatherhood. Absolutely. Let me just go back just a little bit. The assessments of white fathers are very interesting because they range and they depend on how that father treated his children or the mother. And so in most cases, they're pretty negative. These children are not very positive about and have some pretty interesting things to say about their fathers. Now, in the very rare cases where white fathers actually acknowledged their enslaved children, sometimes those children were had positive things to say about those fathers, particularly if those fathers provided freedom. They were far more ambivalent about white fathers who provided some sort of special status on the plantation, but didn't go so far as to publicly acknowledge them or to provide freedom. And Black communities absolutely vilified white men who fathered children by enslaved women and then abused, mistreated, or sold those children. Because like I said earlier, that completely violated their sense of paternal duty. And there is one chapter that really focuses more on women and sexual exploitation within slavery, which was rampant. And I look at how women felt about the white fathers of their children in cases of rape and sexual violence, and then also look at concubines, women who were essentially purchased as sexual companions. And one of the things that I argue is that you can't have consent in a situation where one person is owned and the other person is an owner. So I do talk about something I call limited consent, because there were some of these women who were using these types of relationships to try to gain freedom or to try to gain material benefits. They were being strategic about the way that they manipulated these relationships, but that could backfire on them. And it often did backfire on them because white men were often perfectly happy to sell their concubines and their children. And one of the things that is really interesting, and I'm just building on the work of previous historians who've talked in depth about what is called the fancy trade, which is these usually mixed race women, light-skinned women, who were bought and sold specifically as sexual objects. And they're often referred to as seamstresses. It's kind of the polite way to refer to them, but everyone knew what was going on. And these women were often installed in their own cabins, and they often bore multiple children for slaveholders. And by the middle of the 19th century, most of these women were, in fact, the children of slaveholders. And so I think one of the things we need to think about is the fact that many of these women were entrapped by the choices made by their white fathers. When a white man fathered a child, if that child was female, it really increased the likelihood that she was going to somehow end up in this sex trade. She was going to be sold as a fancy girl. She was going to end up as a concubine to another white man. And so it really gets at this idea that paternity, white paternity, is really tied up in sexual exploitation. And now it's absolutely true that many of these women 
exerted some agency and they were engaging in relationships of limited consent, I would argue. But there's this other stereotype throughout history that has blamed these women. And that just lets these white men completely off the hook. Because when they had children by enslaved women, they were basically setting those girls up to be sexually exploited. And another thing I think we need to remember is that the way that a lot of these concubines were treated, they were so socially isolated. They had no social network. White men would often put them in a cabin and separate them from the rest of the enslaved community. Enslaved communities often treated them with suspicion, and and rightly so. But what that meant was these women often had no social network whatsoever. And oftentimes, white men would treat their enslaved children better than they would these concubines. Sometimes those children were actually removed from their mothers and raised by white grandmothers or white families. And when you do that, I tell the story of of several young women who were purchased specifically as sexual objects who were raped at the age of 13 or so, 12 or 13, isolated, purposely isolated from a community. And then their kids are taken away from them, which means they have absolutely no social network whatsoever. And so I think we need to evaluate these women's decisions within that context and understand that they were severely limited. They were born into a certain status because of the decisions that their fathers had made, their white fathers had made. Yeah, that's terrible and gross. And it makes sense that Black men who were there as fathers for their children would be honored so highly when that's the other extreme of what fatherhood could look like. Another thing that I did want to cover was, we talked about it a little bit, the way that Black men because public masculinity was attacked, trying to like publicly protect their wife and kids would put them at risk of being sold or killed, which meant that they had to decide if they were going to just do like one overtly rebellious act and risk never seeing their family again or submit to a more private form of paternal duty so that they could be around longer. Yeah, absolutely. And this is what I refer to as these intractable dilemmas that these men faced. And one of the things that happened for enslaved men, enslaved fathers particularly, and husbands as well, is that these different aspects of masculinity, 19th century masculinity, were brutally partitioned for them. You could not stand up for yourself or you could not protect and hope to stay part of your family and therefore do your duty. So sometimes being a man, right, standing up for yourself, resisting, would mean that you would sacrifice your duty as a father, which is also your duty as a man. And so these men couldn't have it all. They could not exhibit or fulfill all of the aspects of masculinity in the ways that their community idealized masculinity. And so they had to make really painful decisions. And one of those often was that they had to choose to sometimes not resist in the way that they probably wanted to. And they did that specifically so that they can continue to be caretakers. They could continue to nurture their families. They could stay in contact with their families because they knew that if they resisted overtly, they would likely be separated from their family. 
And that is a hard decision to have to make. And that's why when you look at this idea of heroic masculinity that the abolitionists were so fond of, particularly formerly enslaved men who escaped to the North, they really idealized this idea of heroic masculinity, that you're not really a man unless you are willing to die resisting. Well, that's easy to say. Well, it's not easy to say, no matter what. <laughs> Let me back up there. That is a remarkable thing to be willing to do, a risk to be willing to take, to risk your own life, to either you're going to escape or you're going to die. But it's that's a different decision for a childless young man than it is for a man with a family. That's a much harder decision for a man with a family. And there were many enslaved men who could have escaped and didn't because they chose family. Their family was their priority. And so I think those are important things to keep in mind. Frederick Douglass is a really good example. I mean, he's one of the people who inspired this book, but he talks about this awakening he had when he fought back against a slave breaker named Mr. Covey. And he specifically talks about how it revived his manhood. He remained a slave after that, but he was never a slave mentally after that. And Again, this is a remarkable individual. I personally believe he's one of the most eloquent spokesmen about just the American experiment, American democracy that we have in our history. But that is a different decision for him. When he chose to fight back, yeah, that's a huge risk. He could have died doing that. But he didn't have any kids to worry about protecting. He didn't, he had already been separated from his family. And so he risked his own life but he didn't risk being cut off from loved ones. And so I think that heroic masculinity was easier to achieve. It's always difficult to achieve, but it's easier to achieve for childless young men who ran away before they had children. And that was definitely heightened by something else you point out in your book about the fact that fathers were always way more likely to be sold away early in a child's life than mothers. So they knew that they had a high risk of being sold whether or not they did overt heroic masculinity. So it made the decision even harder. Many men chose to escape or chose to try to escape after they were separated from their family. So they waited until they were sold. And so that was a risk you took as a slaveholder, right? If you separated a family, you were going to make men more likely to escape because they prioritized family. And many men specifically talked about that. They said that, you know, as long as I had my family, it's not that they wanted to be slaves, but they chose to make the best of it because they didn't want to be separated from their family. But once they're separated from their family, that's it, right? They don't have anything holding them back at that point. So it's an easier, I mean, it's always a difficult decision, like I said, because you are risking your life, but you've already lost the thing that matters most to you. That's a good bridge into towards the end of your book, because it is about the long 19th century. So you do talk about after slavery and into freedom and just former slaves thinking back on being a slavery and even just like the transition into freedom, how the experiences of fathers during slavery shaped the Black family after. Let's get into that. Well, the Black family remained remarkably flexible because it had to be, because it faced many of the same pressures that it had under slavery. Slavery ended, but that doesn't mean that discrimination ended. The aftermath of the Civil War, the pressures on the Black family remained, and they were often intense. One of the things that that happened in the post-war period, I'm just kind of 
piecing this together with fatherhood, but this is work that other historians have done a great job on. Talking about just indentures and apprenticeships, white former planters moved very quickly to apprentice Black children or indenture Black children. And in doing so, they really compromised the ability of the Black family to remain intact in one household. And they also limited the mobility of African-American adults, because you're not going to move if you can't take your kids with you. And your kids are really important to you. And so what that did was it helped whites control the labor of blacks. And what they would often do is apprentice the older children, the ones who were more economically viable. And they would leave black families with the young kids who couldn't really economically contribute. And what this did is it just exacerbated this cycle of poverty for African-American families in the post-war period. And what it did was it meant that you have a continuation of this kind of multi-local kinship networks as under slavery, because oftentimes you have different members of the family, the group that thinks of itself emotionally as a family, they're in different households. They're often working in white households. So it was difficult. It was really hard to keep families intact and keep them in a single household. And the other thing that you see in the post-war period is this continuation of hiding, caretaking behavior, because men who achieved any sort of success, African-American men in the post-war period, invited violence. You do not want people to think that you're accumulating any property or that you're in any way successful, because you are most likely to be violently targeted and brought down. And so that's another reason why this caretaking behavior has been so hidden, because African-Americans were hiding it themselves, because that was what you had to do in order to survive. Something that was just wild to me about this book is that there's always kind of been a stereotype, one of the stereotypes for being able to sell slave children away from parents was this stereotype that like black families don't love the same way that white families do. And yet your book kind of over and over again shows the way that slave owners manipulated this familial love, which means that they recognized it, even though they tried to peddle this stereotype that it didn't exist. Yeah, it's one of the great contradictions of slavery, right? You have this pro-slavery rhetoric, this ideology that argues that African-Americans enslaved people, they form only fleeting attachments. Their main attachment is to the slaveholder. But they absolutely know that that's not the case because they're manipulating this sense of duty and this familial love. They're totally happy to manipulate men's love for their families and men's sense of paternal duty to their families in order to have them reduce some of the costs on slaveholders. They know that these people love their children. I have a, an anecdote in the book where I think it's a son escapes. And who do they go to immediately? They go to the father. They, they know very well that these men love their families. They love their children. So the rhetoric is one thing. The actual behavior, the reality of the behavior is a very different thing. I want to bring it back to rather than just blaming Black men for their absence, there's been so many systemic things that have attacked Black families for centuries. And it is important to look at how versatile Black families have been despite so much pressure to separate them, to undervalue them, and to attack both Black masculinity and Black femininity. They've been under attack forever. I think one of the things that we need to, and I'm a historian, so the 19th century is my thing. So when we get up to the present, this is not my area of expertise. 
But I think one of the things that my book does is really kind of get at how the legacy of slavery continues to impact the Black family and Black men, also Black women, and how it continues to shape these attitudes and how it continues to shape public policy in many ways. And one of the things we need to start addressing is these more systemic factors that you're talking about, things like mass incarceration, ongoing poverty, lack of economic opportunity, redlining, things like that. Really interesting studies by sociologists looking at fatherhood in inner city poor communities. And this is true of white communities and black communities. There are absolutely problems with fatherlessness. But those problems aren't about being black. Those problems are about being poor and lacking opportunity. Because you see this with poor white people as well. Just how that lack of educational opportunity, lack of economic advancement, how all of these things impinge on the family and put pressures on the family. And so what we need to start addressing is those more systemic problems and stop blaming people, because we tend to blame people and think that these are somehow innate problems when they're not. These are structural problems. And that's one of the things that I'm trying to get at in this book. Yeah, there were absolutely missing fathers during slavery, but that was not because these men wanted to be missing from their families. That was because of the constraints of slavery, of the institution of slavery. And we have ongoing structural social problems that are impinging on poor families, and not just poor Black families, poor families. Yes, yes. Blame the structure and the system, not those trying their hardest to fight against it. Thank you so much for coming on my show, Professor. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. So again, happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there putting in the work to be good dads. And as always, if you like the show, there's plenty you can do to show your support. From my website, wetheblackpeople.captivate.fm, you can click on the Apple Podcasts button and leave a review in Apple Podcasts. You can follow at We The Black People Pod on Facebook or Instagram. And you can share this with anyone you think would want to hear it or needs to hear it. It's thanks to you that I got my first ever ad inquiry for this episode, which I think is kind of a big deal. So thank you for your continued support and all power to all people, y'all.